your Holy Spirit as He illuminates the truth in our hearts and our minds. And, uh, Father, may we rightly divide your word. We pray that you would help us to, um, to come to these pages without a preconceived idea of what we think we ought to believe, but rather seeking what the Bible tells us we should believe. And may we hold to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles tonight. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 5, to begin. And uh, as we've mentioned now for several weeks, uh, we're going to start a study tonight. It's going to go at least <clears throat> at least one more Wednesday night, probably two more, more than likely two more, and uh, possibly a, a fourth Wednesday night uh, uh, at the end. There may be a, a, an offshoot of this that we may delve with as, a little bit as well. What I'm going to try to do, and we're going to deal with the topic of repentance in Scripture, uh, how it applies to salvation, uh, what the Bible has to say about it. I think a lot of folks, uh, very sincere folks, very good people on uh, that hold to Scripture and hold to our kind of Scripture and hold to the idea of purity of doctrine, uh, there are several that uh, would be in disagreement with even each other over this. And I want us to do our best to exhaust Scripture on it and to leave the doctrine of uh, repentance uh, up to what the Bible says. And I want to ask, if you will, at the onset of this, as we do so oftentimes when we look at things like this, where there are good people, people that are well-intentioned and and sincere, and, and we look up to as people that love Scripture and study Scripture, uh, when there are differing views, obviously there's only one doctrine. And so we want to we approach this in a very gracious way. I'm not up here to say I'm right and you're wrong. I'm up here to try to guide us as a church through the Scriptures and let the Bible determine where this doctrine should be. And this is our purpose, this is our motive. And in dealing with a subject like this sometimes, and knowing that there are some uh, varying opinions on it, uh, sometimes the motive of the pastor is questioned about why he's dealing with it. Uh, I have no dog in this fight other than to be right scripturally. And uh, I, I certainly want to make sure that we are within Scripture. Uh, it's not pastor's preference. It's not my, uh, my opinion. It's things that I want to just bring out that I believe are clearly defined in Scripture and uh, let the Bible speak for itself. And then I would ask for you over the next several weeks to be uh, seeking uh, for God's Holy Spirit to have our eyes opened. He, uh, he has a way of bringing truth to light that oftentimes is difficult for us to understand in our human minds and, and the, the thoughts that we often have. So I'm going to tonight give an introductory lesson. Uh, it's going to be a very uh, umbrella Uh, covering of the material, and then the next two weeks we are going to go back and break down uh, these things because I want to give you the gist of where we're going with it, and then uh, we're going to spend some time, a lot of time, in a lot of Scripture um, over the next two weeks uh, delving into some more uh, detailed uh, passages uh, on this. Uh, Two weeks ago uh, on Wednesday night I uh, brought a lesson on uh, principles of Developing doctrine from uh, God's word, and I want to—I'm not going to re-preach that, but a lot of folks are here tonight that were not here two nights, or two Wednesday nights ago, and uh, I'm just going to go through these very quickly because these are foundational for us 
uh, as we come to Scripture. These are rules that we go by uh, when we come to Scripture and try to find doctrine in it. Uh, look with me in Hebrews chapter number 5. And uh, I'm not going to read uh, the entirety of the passage, but the first part of chapter 5 is dealing with the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is our high priest. And the writer of Hebrews uh, talks about him being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was an Old Testament uh, king of Salem and also a high priest. And um, uh, some people believe that he was uh, an earthly uh, form of the Lord Jesus Christ called a theophany. Uh, because the Bible talks about the fact that he was eternal. Um, and uh, so there, there were some reasons for that. Um, there's some debate about that, whether that's true or not. But suffice to say, uh, Melchizedek no doubt was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ at the least in the Old Testament. Um, and it's uh, talking about the uh, perfectness of the Lord Jesus being our high priest, that he's not a high priest uh, in the line of men, uh, but he's an eternal high priest And uh, in verse number 11 of chapter 5, this is what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with as he comes to verse number 11. Of whom we have many things to say, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ being this high priest. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Uh, and he's, he's talking here about the idea of there are some things in Scripture that are easily seen, uh, they're easily understood. They're easily read. There are some things of Scripture that you have to think a little bit on. You have to dig a little bit deeper for. And the writer of Hebrews here calls them the milk of the word, or, or the, the milk of the word being the the the, the easier understood things. The, the strong meat being those things that sometimes take a little more effort. They take a little bit of uh, discernment. They take some, according to uh, verse number fourteen, that says, "But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age." So it takes some maturity. It takes some understanding of biblical principles, basic biblical principles. Um, And then it says, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern uh, both good and evil. So it takes some discernment that comes from uh, not only experientially going through Scripture and studying it and knowing it, but by the Holy Spirit illuminating and bringing truths to light in our own hearts and our own lives and the importance of that. You say, well, is this dealing with doctrine? Well, Again, our chapters and verses were not given uh, by inspiration. They were added later as a way for us to organize Scripture, to see them easily, find them easily. So uh, this, this letter is being written uh, in, in a continuous letter format. And he goes on to say, But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, those who, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, meaning this is a continuation of what he just spoke about in a concluding matter. He says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the what? Doctrine of Christ. So this, this contrast between the milk of the Word and the strong meat is dealing with the issue of doctrine. Uh, there are some doctrines easier to be understood than others. And uh, it's very important that we rightly divide Scripture, that we understand Scripture. My purpose in pastoring is not to be correct. My purpose in pastoring is to be right scripturally. And if somebody comes and says, Pastor, you're wrong, I have no problem with that, provided they can show me from Scripture. 
Uh, I'm not up here to try to stroke my own ego of I'm never wrong about Scripture because I know better than that. Uh, there are things I've preached that I didn't even agree with when I preached them sometimes. <laughs> Sad to say early on. Not quite that bad, but almost. Because I know there's things in Scripture that, that I've missed over the years. I'm thankful. I am thankful for godly people that have come with the right spirit and said, uh, we might want to look at that again in Scripture. Sometimes it has been very helpful. I have been able to correct the issue. A few times I was able to determine that it was right, what we were teaching, and uh, it helped them. And then sometimes we were both wrong on the issue, and we ended up finding out uh, what the Bible really did say on the subject. Any of those are the right outcome, because we want to know what does the Bible say. I am not at all, I used to when I was younger, perhaps had more of an inclination to be agreeable with other preachers and to not cause waves. I'm at the point in my life and in ministry that I would rather be right scripturally than to be in agreement with everybody else that's wrong scripturally. And you say, well, that's kind of a harsh statement. I don't mean it to be arrogant or incendiary, but at the end of the day, one day we're standing before God, and we will give an account. And as a pastor, we especially stand in accountability for the things that we've taught and led people in. And so I want to encourage you to uh, bear with us over the next few weeks. I'm going to give you uh, seven uh, points about uh, principles of found, founding doctrine in Scripture. I'm just going to give them quickly th- through, and then we're going to jump into the subject uh, of repentance. We're going to define some terms tonight, and uh, we're going to talk about some things that the Bible does say, and then we're going to talk about what uh, repentance does not mean, and uh, then we'll move on from there in the weeks ahead. So those are the three areas we're going to try to cover within the next 30 minutes, all right? So pray that we get through the material in a pace that everyone can follow and understand and also in a place that uh, we can get through the material. We don't want to just prolong this and go for weeks and weeks and weeks if uh, we if it uh, draws it out too long. Uh, but the importance here that I wanted you to get from Hebrews chapter 5 is the importance of making sure that we study, that we sometimes it takes some work, it takes some maturity, it takes some thinking spiritually and theologically to be able to understand some things of Scripture. And we want to do that. We want to carefully examine and thoroughly examine uh, the Scriptures on this doctrine. Let me give you these seven steps very quickly. First of all, any doctrine that we come up with from Scripture is to be based on the totality of the biblical teaching on any given subject matter. So this, this one's going to be on repentance. Uh, we don't just take one verse or one passage or even two or three passages we take the totality of all that is written on the subject because God begins to establish doctrine in Genesis chapter 1 and He doesn't stop establishing doctrine until He gets to the end of Revelation. It is something that is continuously building. And sometimes God gives uh, teaching on a doctrine that is to the point where He wants that particular person He's addressing to uh, be brought to an understanding of. Later on, He may add some things to it that help clarify or even build upon that doctrine to help us to... Uh, better understand it. So, uh, very important that we understand biblical doctrine uh, needs to be established on the totality of scriptural, uh, uh, the Scripture on the subject. Secondly, understanding of the doctrine must be founded upon the, the totality of the context of the biblical teaching in any given subject. Uh, because, again, you could take every single verse on the subject of repentance, and if you don't read the context in each, each of those verses... Uh, you can come up with a wrong doctrine. 
Context is vitally, vitally important. Uh, we need to bathe. Uh, every time we come to Scripture and look at doctrine, we need to bathe it in prayer and say, Lord, show me. Teach me. Open my eyes. The Holy Spirit inspired this book word for word, and He's the one that can give the teaching of it. The Bible teaches the fact that He's going to teach us in all truth, and He will help to open our eyes of understanding. And so I think it is crucial that we make that the paramount thing uh, when it comes to understanding doctrine. Number three, doctrine does not vary depending on the person's understanding of it. Doctrine is established. Uh, there is not the doctrine that you have and then the doctrine that I have. There's only one doctrine. And either you're right and I'm wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong, or both of us are wrong, or both of, but we can't both be right if we differ on it. Because there is only one doctrine. And be careful, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, be careful when you get into these Bible study groups and sometimes uh, folks uh, study Scripture together, and I think that's a great thing. There's a wonderful fellowship in that. But be careful getting into Scripture and each person having their own interpretation of the passage, saying this is what it means to me, this is what it means to me, and they differ. There's only one truth. That truth doesn't change. That doctrine does not change, depending on the student's understanding of it. If there is a disagreement, it's because one or both of us are wrong. And uh, so very, very important that we understand this. And by the way, it should not be that when there is a disagreement that we run away from it and say, well, uh, we just have to agree to disagree. No, no. If there's a disagreement, then let's come together because we need to know the truth of that doctrine. And so let's come to Scripture. Let's open the Bibles together. Let's read through the Scriptures together until we get to the point where we can be in agreement with what the doctrine is. I, I, so many times I hear these preachers that are good preachers. I've had it happen to me. Men that I look up to and, and respect that I differ maybe on uh, in a doctrinal area, or they do, and uh, they just say, well, I just don't want to talk about it. That, that is not the right answer. Because if there, is a, if there is a difference, then one or both of us are wrong. And I want us to find out which. I want us to know, uh, not, not that it matters who is right or who is wrong, but I want us to know the truth of that doctrine. We need to get to the basis of this. And if there's something that can be shown from Scripture, I think there's a wonderful uh, idea of coming together and studying that together until the Holy Spirit allows us, and with prayerful hearts, the Holy Spirit allows us to get to the place where we understand the doctrine together as the truth of God's Word. Number four, it is of utmost importance that we rightly divide the issues of doctrine. This is, uh, again, this is along the line of what I just said. Don't just put it off. Uh, because there's a difference there. It is vitally important. I cannot emphasize this enough, folks. Eternity of men's souls hangs on the fact of us being right on doctrine. There are people today that are lost, that have gone on into eternity and are in hell today because they were taught by people who could not give them sound doctrine. And it's happening every single day. Don't, don't think that this is something lightly to be taken. This is something that vitally important. Because it is so important that we rightly divide the issues of doctrine, I'm going to give you some sub-points under this, about eight of them here. Number one, under four, begin with a season of prayer requesting for God's aid with divine illumination of truth by His Holy Spirit while studying doctrine. I've said that already, but make sure that is a primary thing of us understanding doctrine and rightly dividing it. Number two, empty yourself of pre-settled beliefs and have been based only on surface or shallow teaching of a singular passage, or, and come to God's Word with an open heart to be taught by what it says. How many times in my life I've noticed 
that I have tried to come to Scripture because somebody asked me to look at something and to verify it. And I, the whole time I'm thinking, this is what I believe on the subject. And I tend to put my prejudice and my preconceived idea and belief and overlay the verse and try to explain verses away sometimes. We've got to be careful that we lay those things aside and let the Bible speak for itself. Let it show us. There are two types of people in this world. Those that get their doctrine from the Bible. And then those that make their Bible fit their doctrine. I do not want to be in the class that makes their Bible fit their doctrine. And I hope that you don't either. I hope we come to the Bible and say, Lord, teach me what my doctrine should be. Very, very important. Number three under, uh, number, uh, point number four, or letter C under point four if you do an outline. Do not attempt to make scriptures fit your pre-settled beliefs of even your working hypothesis. So you might have an idea, this is what I think it means, and you may be two-thirds of the way through scripture after weeks and weeks of studying it, and all of a sudden you hit a verse that, that shoots down that thought and that process. Don't just plow on through and make it fit. Stop, go back and rethink it, Find out why it's conflicting with what you think it's, it's speaking about there. Because this is something I know for a fact, and that is Scripture will never contradict doctrine. If it is the right doctrine, it does not contradict itself. Even if one verse is against what that whole batch of other verses you think is saying, even if only one verse is against it, then the doctrine is wrong. You haven't rightly divided it. So make sure that you are careful not to make the Scriptures fit. Number, letter D, make every effort to understand what the passage says. Read the context of it. Understand who it's being written to. Understand who it's being written by. What are the circumstances of the writing? And what is it actually trying to say? Letter E, uh, read every verse or passage dealing with the subject. That sounds like it should be a no-brainer. But I know a lot of people who have doctrines that are established on two or three verses and they've never taken the time to go through the entirety of Scripture and found every verse on the subject. And then they establish a doctrine on it. Uh, folks, we need to know this book. The Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And if we're going to be folks that have strong, sound doctrine, we have to be folks that are willing to do the work to study, to show these things approved unto God, workmen that need not be ashamed. It's going to require some strong meat study, not just milk of the word study. And so uh, make every effort to read the, uh, all the verses and all the passages dealing with the subject. Next one, look up words and phrases that you don't understand. <laughs> Keep a dictionary handy. Uh, that should go without saying. Most of us are old enough to know when we were in school, uh, if we didn't know a word and we asked mom or dad what it meant, what they tell us? Look it up. Look it up. Folks, it takes a minute. Look it up. And with all the digital stuff we have anymore, it only takes seconds even sometimes. Take a minute and look it up. If you don't understand it, look it up. Uh, next one, uh, seek to have a clear understanding of doctrine. Just pursue after it until you do, until you're settled in your heart and your mind. This is what the Bible says. Have a hunger for it and a thirst for it. And then uh, lastly, don't rush to a conclusion. Don't be in such a hurry to get to the end of it. Let the Bible do what it's going to do in your hearts. We live in an instant gratification world, and our tendency is to rush through. I have to be careful sometimes, even in pastoring, when I have three and a half pages of notes like I do tonight and 30 minutes to preach it in, my tendency is I want to get through the material. And I tend to rush if I'm not careful. Don't rush in matters of doctrine. You say, why shouldn't I rush? Because it is of utmost importance that we rightly divide on doctrinal issues.
it matters eternity for somebody. That's why it's so important. That's why we don't rush. That's why we're very careful in our study of it. All right, that was all under point number four. Number five, doctrine will never contradict any other portion of Scripture. I mentioned that one earlier. Number six, do not elevate the teaching of men above what Scripture says. Do not elevate the teaching of men above what Scripture says. Uh, This is one that in the day we live is running rampant through our churches, even our independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, King James Version, Baptist churches. Make sure we do not elevate the teaching of men above what the Scripture says. And number seven, do not base doctrine on what is not said of Scripture. I've seen people do this so many times. Uh, Well, it's not there, so it must mean this. Well... It's not there because God didn't choose to reveal it to us. So if the Bible's silent on it, let us be silent on it. Don't make a doctrine on something that is not there. Be very, very careful. All right? So these are rules of principles doctrine. These are rules we're going to attempt to follow over the next several weeks as we come to this passion, uh, uh, passage. All right? Uh, we're going to define a few terms here real quick because at the onset it is important as we go through and study this that when I use a word... Uh, you understand what I mean by that word, all right? The first one I want to do is, uh, what is sin, all right? What is sin? So I can easily give you a definition of that uh, from what I think sin is, but let's let the Bible define it. Can we do that? And then I'll give you uh, maybe what even Webster says about it. But let's go to the Scriptures about it and see what sin is. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter number 5. And uh, we're just going to move through several passages rather quickly here. Galatians chapter number 5. And uh, let's go to verse number 19. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 19. Now it says this, and it uses this phrase, Now the works of the flesh, all right, these are contrasted with just a few moments down in verse number 22, the fruit of the Spirit. So these are the works that would be characterizing a Carnal life, a sinful life, a natural man life before salvation. So the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God." These all are specific sins that Paul writes to um, the churches of Galatia uh, that all have their basis, and you can take every single one of them and actually put all of them into one of the Ten Commandment categories. Uh, Each one of them will fit into one of those Ten Commandments. And so, again, we would say this, and if if these are the works of the flesh, that it's the breaking of the law of God or the violating of the law of God. So sin would be uh, any violation of the law of God. Uh, let's look in Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians, or Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians 3 and verse number 5. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 5. Mortify therefore your members Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And so again, 
uh, we find here that the easiest definition or violation of sinful things or the works of the flesh would be those that are disobedient to the law of God or violating the law of God, the moral laws that God has given to us uh, in His Word. Let's look in James chapter number 1. James chapter number 1. We'll begin in verse number 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So this temptation is not speaking of just general testing, although sometimes in Scripture the context shows us that that temptation is just a general testing that God uses to strengthen our faith or to increase our patience, something along that line. But here we're speaking specifically of being tempted with evil. All right? uh, James is writing this. And he makes mention of this in verse 13. That God cannot be tempted with either, neither tempteth he any man. Within the context, uh, he's saying there, neither tempteth he any man in the area of evil things. Does God tempt man as far as testing our faith? Sure he does. So we understand the context of what James is saying here, right? Okay, he's talking about the evil of it. But every man is tempted, again, speaking of evil temptation, or sin, if you will, when he is what? Drawn away of his own... Lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so again, here we find uh, that sin can be defined as us following after the things that our flesh wants and not after the laws that God has given to us. Uh, the Old Testament uh, Ten Commandments, the moral laws of God. We're not talking about the ceremonial or identifying laws that He gave to the nation of Israel but the moral, the moral laws uh, for every man that are found in Scripture by God. And so the violation of these things would be uh, the sin. Let's look in James chapter 2. James chapter number 2, verse number 1, My brethren, have not faith of our Lord Jesus, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect on him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor... Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do, they, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. So again, talking about fulfilling the law. But if you have respect to persons, ye commit what? Sin. So the contrast between verse 8 and verse number 9 is, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the law. In verse number 9, it says, if you have respect unto the person, that's the opposite of that. That you are committing what? Sin. Right? Notice it says, and are convinced of the law as convinced of the law as transgressors, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the what? Law. So we would say again, James is saying here that the sin is not keeping the law. We understand that. Okay? Then let's uh, look at also First John chapter three, and I think probably out of all of these scriptures, this one is probably the most uh, illuminating 
in helping us understand a basis as we look into this subject of repentance. And we will be coming back to this verse a couple of times. 1 John chapter number 3. First John chapter 3 and verse number 3. And every man that hath this hope in him. Okay, so who are we speaking of here? If you have that hope in you, are you saved or lost? Or saved, okay? He's speaking here to save people. And every man that hath this hope in him, notice this. What does it say right after that? Purifieth himself, even as he is pure. There's going to be no doubt by the time we're done with this study that of forsaking sin and pursuing good works is a result of salvation. But we need to make sure that that is very, very clear that it is the result of. This is somebody who already has hope. Notice he says in verse 3 that this man who has hope purifieth himself. It's an ongoing process. All right? Look what he says in verse number 4. Whoso committeth, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. And it cannot be put any plainer than this on a definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. That is absolute, word for word, the mention of Scripture on what sin is. It is the best definition you can ever use because it's the Bible definition. I did look up Webster's 1828 Dictionary, but I'll tell you this, it's not going to improve on that one. I'll read to you what Webster's 1828 says. It says, The voluntary departure departure of a moral agent from a known rule of rectitude or duty prescribed by God, or any voluntary transgression of the divine law, or violation of a divine command, a wicked act, or iniquity. Again, it's just as simple to say from 1 John chapter 3, verse number 14, for sin is the transgression of the law. Okay? Keep that definition in mind. We will be back to this passage a number of times throughout this study. Okay? So keep that, keep that one in mind. If you can't memorize much Scripture, memorize at least uh, 1 John 3, 4, and at least the last half of that verse. It would be good to memorize all of it, but if you can't remember all of it, at least remember the last half of it. Okay? All right. Now let's look at uh, what is repent. All right? Let's look at the repentance or the word repent. Repentance is, I'm going to make a couple of statements here. We're going to look at some scripture to illustrate this because the Bible doesn't have a clear, defined definition of it like this does, but it does illustrate it very clearly. And so we're going to do it that way. Uh, it says this, uh, uh, repentance is this. It is an attitude. First of all, it's important for us to understand that repentance is always an attitude. It is not an action. Repentance is an attitude. It is not an action. While repentance can lead to an action, it is not an action in and of itself. Uh, one definition that was given that is very often used in Scripture is that we are to sorrow or to be pained for sin as a violation of God's holy law, a dishonor to His character and government, and the foulest ingratitude of being, uh, of, to the being of infinite benevolence. So we are to be pained for that sin. We are to feel bad about it. And by the way, that comes by the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. We are convicted of sin. This is a, an attitude of repentance. And so one where we realize that we have violated God's law. There is sorrow there. There is a brokenness there. There is a depravity of our, our soul there that uh, we are convicted of. All right? 
We understand the sinfulness of our sin would be a good way to put that. Uh, let's look in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to see this illustrated. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 5. <clears throat> and in fact, let's just go back to verse 1. We'll read down to verse 5. We're not going to make it through tonight's lesson anyway in the next 10 minutes, so we'll just take our time and make sure we're going through this step by step. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hath labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and what? Repent. In other words, you've, you've brought displeasure to the heart of God. You have violated something that He has had for you. And uh, Jesus tells them, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Again, uh, having a sorrow for their violating of God's will in the matter. Uh, having a, a repentant attitude towards it. Again, the repentance is not the action. The repentance may motivate an action, but the repentance is a change of the heart, the change of the mind on the matter, uh, understanding this. Now, there's another definition that is also used in Scripture, and again, you have to read context to find it. You'll find several times where the word repentance is not dealing at all with sinfulness, uh, and it's a more general, more generic definition, and it means this, to change the mind in consequence or inconvenience to injury done by past conduct. So there are sometimes that uh, the Bible will use the word repent generically to mean just a change of mind. Uh, and that's all it means. Let's look at a couple of illustrations of that in Scripture as well. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter number 7. And let's look in verse number 21. Oops, got the wrong, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 7 and verse number 8, excuse me. I got ahead of myself, I was in Hebrews seven twenty-one. All right, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse number 8. Paul writes this, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. He says, look, it made you sorry, you were upset about what I wrote. He said, but I wanted to repent, but I, I did repent, but I'm not going to repent. And notice he says, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not changing what I've written. This isn't something Paul's done as a sin or a contrary to God's law or contrary to God's will in the matter. It's just something he says, I'm not going to change in my position on this. All right? So he says, I'm not going to repent. In this sense, the repent here is used strictly to mean just changing of the mind. I'm not going to change my mind on it. I am grounded on this. I'm stuck on this. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to see another passage that does the same thing, again, to try to illustrate this particular definition of it. Hebrews chapter number 7. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter number 7. And uh, let's go down to verse number 21. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. For those priests were made without an oath. Speaking of these these human priests that we talked about just a moment ago, uh, before the order of Melchizedek. Uh, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear 
and will not... What's the next word here? Repent. All it's saying is God gave His word on it, and He is not going to change His mind on the matter. It's not going to happen. We know that this repentance is not speaking about sin, because it's speaking here of the Lord repenting. You say, oh no, that means that that's a sinful repentance there. Then that means that the Lord would have to be repenting. And He didn't sin. So it just means simply a change of mind. Both of them are a change of a heart attitude. Neither one of them are an action that is to be done. Once again, they may lead to an action, but you've got to keep separate the cause and the effect. And while repentance may be the cause, the good works, the forsaking of sin, that's an effect of repentance. That is not repentance in and of itself. Very important we understand this. Look with me in Matthew chapter number 5. Let's look at what are good works, all right? What are good works? What are good works? Matthew chapter number 5. We'll get most of the way through the notes tonight, about halfway. Matthew chapter 5, let's look in verse number 16. Jesus says this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. So we know he's speaking here about, about doing good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, keeping the context, he moves right on into this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the what? Law. Wait a minute, we were just talking about good works. Where did law come in at? Or the prophets, uh, prophets, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot and one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we're finding here a definition, again, of good works to be tied to this idea of the keeping of the law. If we have sin, and bear with me now, if we have sin as the violation of the law, and good works are the keeping of the law, then as we look at repentance, there are several phrases that are often used that are either misused or misunderstood. And I'm going to give you three of them. When we talk to some people about being saved sometimes, we may use a phrase something like this, that you need to repent from your sin. And while if you have a proper understanding of the word repentance, that may in the most technical sense be right, but the way we say it and the way we intend it means that we are to repent from our sin and put those sin behind us. What are we saying? We're saying you need to keep the law. You cannot violate the law, which is sin. You've got to forsake that in order to be saved. We now have work salvation. You see how quickly that turns? We've got to be so careful of these phrases. Is it a wrong phrase to use? Not if you understand what repentance is. Is it a wise phrase to use? Absolutely not very difficult phrase to use because we shouldn't have to explain it. The gospel should be clear. The gospel should be easily understood by folks. 
And so are there better ways to word this? Absolutely there are. Are there better ways to bring people to Christ? Absolutely there are. We're going to look at those in just a moment. Another phrase that's often used is forsake your sin. You've got to trust Christ and forsake your sin. Again, this implies the keeping of the law. The word forsake means this, to quit or leave entirely, to desert or to abandon, and to depart from. It's amazing to me how often in Scripture Paul deals with believers who are saved becoming more sanctified. (laughs) Put away this sin and walk in the Spirit. Don't do the works of the flesh, walk in the Spirit. And he gives the lists of these sins. He says, abstain from those. Don't do these things. You need to live in such a way as it becometh the gospel of Christ. If we had to forsake our sin to get saved, why would there be sin to have to grow by after we get saved? We have quit, left entirely, and deserted our sin. It's not right to say forsake your sin. Because now we're work salvation again. We are back to the keeping of the law in order to be saved. The third one that we often use is and it's only slightly better, maybe, than repent from your sin. We'll say, repent of your sin. Okay. Uh, again, wrong phrase. If you understand repentance, no. Not in the strictest sense. Is it the best phrase to use because of the ambiguity, the, the misunderstanding, the misuse of it so often? Yeah, it's probably not real wise. Probably a very difficult one to try to... When you're sharing the gospel with someone, it's very difficult to explain what that is and then to have a full grasp of the gospel. Are there other things that we can say? You say, well, bless God, the Bible says it. No, it doesn't. You won't find any of those three phrases anywhere in Scripture. They're not in there. You say, what? I didn't know that. I thought, sure, that was in there. The the closest one we can find is in Acts chapter 8. Turn with me there for a minute. Acts chapter 8, verse number 22. This one's really, really close, and I'll give you this one, okay? This one's really, really close. And let's see what it says here, all right? Acts 8.22. All right, everybody there? Acts chapter 8, I want everybody to see it. And verse number 22. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness. Oh, man, that is really close, isn't it? Repent of this thy wickedness. That would be really close to repent of your sin. Would you agree with me on that? That one's really, really close. There's a problem, though. Look with me, if you will, in verse number uh, 18. All right, I'm sorry, verse number uh, 16. Go up to verse number 16. Uh, is that where I want to be? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Verse, verse 18 is fine. Is that right? Nope, excuse me. I'm, I'll get it right. Verse 13. There we go. I'm sorry. Had the wrong thing. All right. Verse 13. Here we go. Then Simon himself, what does this say? Believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So this man, saved or unsaved? He believed, he was baptized. Saved or unsaved? He's saved. He's following Philip around, seeing miracles and signs that are done. Now, when the apostles which were at uh, Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, 
saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Now, he's not talking about the gift of God of salvation. He's talking about the gift of God of being filled with the Spirit in that apostolic time. And so here's a saved man. He sees these miracles going on. He says, I want some of that too. How much is it going to cost me? And Peter, Peter rebukes him. He says, you can't put money on, on something like this. It's a spiritual gift. There's a wickedness there that you're missing. He says, thou hast neither part nor lot in the matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Is he still saved? Sure he is. Is he right with God on the matter? No, not on your life he's not. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness. What wickedness? Thinking he could buy the Holy Spirit with money. Lost or saved? While this may be the closest we can find to one of those three misused phrases, it doesn't apply. Because it's not talking about someone getting saved. It's talking about a Christian repenting of the wickedness in his own life. Which, by the way, we're going to come to find out that most of the references in the New Testament, not all, but most of them, are actually addressing Christians, not the lost. There are a few that are addressing the lost, and we'll look at those as we get further into it. All right, what does the Bible say? Give me a few moments. I want to look at uh, just a few things about what the Bible does say about the uh, salvation and the keeping of the law. And this is vitally important because, again, any doctrine we come up with cannot contradict other Scripture. It can't do it. All right? So let's look at Romans uh, chapter 3 and verse number 20. We'll move quickly through this, and I will be done in the next. If you'll bear with me, give me ten minutes. We may go a little bit longer each Wednesday night on these because there's a lot of material to cover. And uh, we don't want to just rush so quickly through it that we miss it, okay? We want to we be grounded in this. Romans chapter 3, let's look in verse number 20. The Bible says, Therefore, by the deeds of the what? Law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Keeping the law. And we said the keeping of the law is good works. It's forsaking the not keeping of the law and giving yourself to the keeping of the law. All right? So these, these good works, the forsaking of sin, uh, all deal with keeping of the law. All right? By keeping of the law shall no flesh be justified. So it's not going to be by forsaking our sin that we're justified. It's going to be by our faith, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in Ephesians chapter number 2. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1. And uh, let's begin reading. We'll begin reading verse number 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the... Who is he writing to here? The saints, which are at Ephesus. And to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be unto you, or grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved in whom we have redemption through His keeping of the law. Is that what it says? Through His forsaking of sin. Through His cleaning up His life before He gets saved. No, it says, in whom we have redeemed, redemption through His blood. 
the forgiveness of sins according to, you know, it must be here, according to the works, right? According to our forsaking of sin. No, according to the riches of His grace. We're saved only by the unmerited favor of God as we place our faith into Him. Don't turn me off tonight because repentance does play a part of salvation, but you're going to be surprised at what part it does play. So hang in there with me. Don't call me a heretic yet. Okay? We will get there. It's just not tonight. All right? Wherein, let's look at verse number 8, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. If you ought to underline that verse. We ought to be to the praise of his glory. Should we forsake sin? Absolutely. Why? Because we're saved. Should we live a life that is pleasing to God? Absolutely. Why? Because we're saved. Because there's a sanctifying work that takes place when we get saved. In whom we also, ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So what took place here for this? We heard the word of truth, we trusted it, and it gave us salvation. It was the gospel of our salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love unto all the saints, cease not to thank, give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us were to believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him upon His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of Him, that filleth all in all. And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. I did not find one ounce of anything that deals with forsaking of a sin in order to be saved in that passage. In fact, so much so that in verse, and we didn't take time to read all of this, but in verse number 4 it talks about God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He did it while we were dead in our sins. By grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. What are works? Keeping the law. 
forsaking of the violating of the law. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Alright? Uh, go to John chapter 3. I'll just quote it, verse number 16, you know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, what? Believeth in Him hath everlasting life. Titus chapter number 3. And, and, and folks, we could do this for another probably hour tonight. Go through verses of Scripture that speak very clearly of salvation by faith and faith alone. John, uh, Titus chapter number 3. Titus 3, verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by His what? Grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there are those that are out there that hold to the idea of forsaking sin to be saved or... or uh, um, uh, uh, repenting from your sin to be saved, that would say, well, I just can't believe that God would save somebody who, who still is continuing in their sin. Are you still continuing in your sin? He didn't save us because we weren't, going to be, we weren't going to sin anymore because we were going to be perfect. He saved us because of His mercy. Because of the great love with, with he, wherewith He loved us. Now, does that give us license to sin? Oh, no. Of all people, we ought to seek to please Him. So yes, we should forsake sin. Yes, we should try to walk in good works and please Him. But is it required for salvation? No, sir, not at all. It is by His mercy and His grace. And it has nothing to do with me, nor my goodness, nor my righteousness, nor me cleaning myself up before I get there. It is simply by the grace of God. Look in Titus chapter 2. And again, a great, great, I think, wonderful passage of Scripture that gives, it delineates the, the process, if you will. Verse number 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation. What brings salvation? God's grace. Hath appeared to all men. Now, this grace that brings salvation, it teaches me something. When I get saved, all of a sudden I learn some things. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live, doesn't say we must, it says we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Well, I'm glad that grace brought me salvation so I would know to live that way. Because before He came into me in His Holy Spirit, made my body His temple, I didn't know I should have lived that way. I didn't even have any conscience about my sin. Not to, not to the level of the way I should live by way of testimony. Oh, I certainly understood that it was sinful and it was wrong, and I understood that I was going to die and go to hell if I didn't get saved. But once I got saved, there was something that came inside of me that, that, that started speaking to my heart and causing me to realize, hey, I should be living a different way. Cause and effect. The repentance that I have, and we're going to talk about what repentance is next week, and that's one of the top issues that we'll deal with next week, is what repentance actually is according to Scripture. And it is vital for our salvation. But the cause is not the work. It's not the effect. The effect may be good works. The effect may be forsaking of sin. But repentance is not that. 
so be, be careful that we understand this. Uh, I've got many more passages. I, I'm speaking to the choir here tonight on a Wednesday night. You don't need me to read you another 30 verses or so on the Bible teaching what salvation is and how we get it. We'll touch on those next week. Hang in there with me, folks. I know we did not get yet to the, what repentance is. I've spent more time dealing with what repentance is not tonight. And bear with me. Be here next Wednesday, Lord willing. If the rapture happens between now and then, we'll let the Lord finish it. And he will do a far better job than I will on it. And, uh, but uh, hang in there and take the time to see what does the Bible say about it. Uh, read the Scriptures. Study it. Uh, I took, when I started this several months ago, studying and, and getting things ready for this, I think I took maybe 15 minutes on a computer search with a, a King James search, online search, pulled up every scripture I could find in the New Testament on repent, repentance. Put them on a piece of paper, printed them out. I can look at every single one of them. I can read through every one of them and read the totality of scripture on the subject in the New Testament. And um, by the way, be careful about trying to pull some of your Old Testament passages of repentance because that's dealing with a whole different set of, set of things regarding, uh, regarding the nation of Israel usually. Uh, does not almost, almost invariably does not deal with salvation. A uh, few of them have some, some ties to it, but again, very careful of that, all right? Some of you will get into some of those Old Testament repentances. You'll be like, oh, that's, there it is, right there. And it's talking to Israel about repenting of some, something they've done. All right? Uh, let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed. Folks, uh, hang in there next Wednesday. Please, 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 don't just leave here. Leave me hanging on this uh, and walk away and say, well, then you, know, you don't understand some things. Come back next week. We'll talk about what repentance is and how vital.